You're listening to Sustainability Inc., a new limited series podcast from Boston Consulting Group, produced by Fortune Brand Studio. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fortune. Hello, I'm Gaia Vince, host of Sustainability Inc. Throughout the 12 episodes in our series, we'll be delving into the innovative, inspiring missions of top companies around the globe, talking to the business leaders at the front lines of achieving real climate impact. With the stakes higher than ever and the opportunity to make a difference greater than ever, these are the stories to inspire us all to join the urgent fight for true sustainability. Around a quarter of global greenhouse gas emissions come from the transport sector, which runs almost entirely on fossil fuels. And so decarbonising cars, trucks, trains, shipping and aviation is a priority. Cleaning up transportation has huge benefits beyond the climate impact because air pollutants emitted from our vehicles and vessels are extremely hazardous to our health. We do have solutions. Vehicles and trains can be electrified and run directly on renewable power. For ships and planes, hydrocarbon fuels like Avgas can be created from green hydrogen rather than fossil sources. We are only at the beginning of this massive transition but the sector is growing apace and innovative companies are at the forefront. Here with me is Cornelius Piper, Managing Director and Partner with Boston Consulting Group. Now, we all know that there is this big push to decarbonise. We are supposed to be reaching net zero by 2050 in order to keep our global emissions down so that global temperature rise doesn't exceed one and a half degrees of rise above pre-industrial levels by the end of the century. So that's what we're all trying to do. And companies are at various stages in this journey, aren't they? Tell me about the transport industry. Where are we with that, particularly with private cars? We're seeing an accelerated development towards electric vehicles. I think the projections are being moved upwards year by year almost. And the interesting development that became apparent most in the last year was that increasingly the automotive REMs are moving towards committing to concrete dates and targets by which they plan to phase out combustion engine powered vehicles. Some, let's say by 2035, others thinking even about 2030, there is a clear end date. And that has a lot of implications and ramifications also for consumers. You will think differently about purchasing a ICE-powered vehicle if you know that there's an end of life or kind of a due date on that technology because you're thinking about the value of your car when you sell it at a later stage. So my sense is, given that we have a more and more clear end date for that technology, consumer behavior will actually speed up in the shift. So I would imagine that by the end of this decade, the vast majority of new vehicles going onto the roads for passengers and light transport will be electrically powered. The electric vehicle revolution is now underway and it requires all kinds of different transitions from grids to batteries to the vehicles themselves as we move away from internal combustion engines. Chinese automobile manufacturer NIO is pioneering a battery swapping technique. Ganesh Ayer, the company's global CIO, tells us more about it. 
battery, as you may know, is the most expensive component in any electric vehicles. So part of the reason why the adoption is still relatively low, still about three to 4% is the overall EV market in the entire world, which is a tiny fraction of the overall number of vehicles that are being sold. So reason is again, the battery, the high cost, the degradation concerns of the battery, and then the charging infrastructure itself, right? So at NEO, we took these problems as opportunities for us to solve. The charging infrastructure is more common in countries like the United States and Europe, where population density is relatively low. But high population density countries like China, India, and others, we need to provide power solutions. That's exactly what NEO is focused on doing, and we did it so far successfully. So how does it work? So you as a NEO user, you take your NEO vehicle, whether it's ES8, ES6, EC6, or any of the future products that we plan to deploy to the swapping station. And then the robot comes in, removes the old battery, and then puts a new battery in. It does a validation, make sure that everything is in place correctly, and then ready to go. So these battery swapping stations, where are they? What do they look like? It can be on the street. It is on the expressways. And which countries are you in at the moment? We are currently in China. We deployed over 142,000 vehicles. And recently we entered into Norway, specifically in Oslo. So Norway already has a very, very high uptake compared to the global average of electric vehicles. I think about 10% of cars are electric now in Norway. What do you think needs to happen for the switch to be made faster? So the cost itself is one of the reasons for the not so faster adoption that I would like to see it. And the second one is mainly the infrastructure of the charging. The customers are looking for a variety of options for them to take about that charging anxiety from their mind. So that means we have to give them a choice, like what we do at NEO. So chargeable, swappable, upgradable. We've developed everything in a community app, we call it NEO app which has a power map which we built using the IoT technology. The power map connects the NEO users to the NEO-owned battery infrastructure, whether it's a swappable or the supercharging network, and also connects even the third-party charging infrastructure as well, and then the NEO service personnel as well. Why is your company successful where other companies haven't succeeded in battery swapping? Has it finally come that electric vehicles are coming into their own now? In my opinion, NEO succeeded because back in 2007, the EV was still a concept. We have successfully completed over 4 million battery swaps as of October 1st. That validates the innovation and then also the convenience and also the user satisfaction. People feel really comfortable in driving their NEO vehicle long distance. The improvement in battery technology and the reduction in battery prices has been really important in this transition. Cornelius, can you tell us a bit more about EV batteries and the other sustainable options? There's a range of options. There's biofuels, there's synthetic fuels leveraging hydrogen. My opinion is that when we talk about private vehicles, passenger vehicles, light commercial vehicles, we will see a strong convergence towards battery powered propulsion because batteries have a lot of specific advantages versus other fuels in that particular application or in that particular category. When you think about heavy duty or medium duty transportation and trucks, when you think about aviation, for instance, when you think about shipping, it's a different discussion. And batteries have specific disadvantages in those modes of transport because the ratio of weight and energy density, so to say, is not 
made for flying around in planes, or they're just not big enough to power heavy-duty trucks over thousands of kilometers or miles. So I think we will see a certain bifurcation, if you will. Battery-powered vehicles is the technology of choice for the light-duty and passenger vehicles. And then for the kind of heavier applications and categories, we'll be seeing more about synthetic fuels and biofuels. As technology changes, it's worth noting that the designs for vehicles might change too. Here's Chris Anthony, co-founder and co-CEO of Aptera Motors. The Aptera is a uber aerodynamic, lightweight, three-wheeled solar powered transportation device. And when you see it the first time, it's going to look more like an airplane than a car. It's very sleek, pointy nose outboard wheels on the front, kind of like an aircraft. You have your landing wheels kind of hanging out of the aircraft in the front, and then a kind of tail dragging wheel in the rear. All the wheels are fully covered, so you don't actually see anything spinning. So a lot of people, when they see the Aptera the first time, they think it's hovering, which is quite interesting for conversations. <laughs> it does look incredibly futuristic, but what's even more exciting is the way it's charged. We have developed a solar-powered electric vehicle, and we started with a very, very efficient vehicle platform. And because it's so efficient with the amount of energy it uses per mile, you can now do fun things like add solar to the top of it and get really usable solar range. When we were first evaluating the concept of, hey, how useful is solar power, we first started with, okay, how much do people drive? And in the U.S., the average commuter drives about 31 miles a day. And in Europe, they drive about 26 miles a day. So we thought that if we could produce usable solar recharging on the vehicle that could get you more than 30 miles a day, it's a home run. In fact, we're able to fit about 40 miles worth of solar charge range a day in the Southern California sun. So as long as you leave your Aptera outside, you come back and it's like a little magic fairy came and put two gallons worth of electrons back in your tank and you can go drive your 40 miles for free. And then when you run out of those 40 miles, you still have a battery pack that can take you up to a thousand miles after that. So what material are you using instead of steel for the body of this vehicle? Our body structures are very simplified and we only use four pieces to make the main structural body of the Aptera. They're all human positionable, very lightweight. The whole main structure of the vehicle weighs less than 200 pounds. Yet when we last tested it, it had the highest roof crush strength of any passenger car on the road. We use a composite technology called resin infusion, which is done under bag, assisted with vacuum. Basically, the resin's injected in one side and comes out the other, but it leaves basically no trapped air and gives you a very, very strong composite that's seven times stronger than steel per weight. It feels very much that what you haven't done is the classic route of slightly adapting the model we already have to make it greener. It feels like you've gone right back to the beginning and rethought what do you actually need to get from A to B in the most energy efficient, sustainable way? Yeah, we really started with a, a first principles perspective of what consumes the energy when you're in an average passenger vehicle. And the average sedan or SUV will use over 60% of their fuel just pushing air out of the way at highway speeds. So if you could bring that aerodynamic drag down to zero, you would instantly get 60% better fuel economy. It looks very different, but it's driven by the math and science of the equation. It's not driven by a focus group. 
We didn't start, you know, with a market analysis to try to identify a niche that we wanted to enter. And okay, we want to be a crossover SUV, but we want to make it electric. Oh, maybe we could do solar power. No. We started with the premise of how do you get from point A to point B with the least amount of energy possible. And then we ended up with the Aptera. Although these newer technologies might sound radical, Aptera has specifically designed their vehicle to be more affordable. Cornelius, what does this mean for the consumer? How much are we going to have to pay for these new types of sustainable vehicles? It's not a huge rise in price for the consumer. There are, of course, a number of, let's say, economic hurdles further up the value chain. So for the steel producer, for instance, to invest into all this new equipment, that's a huge check to be written. And the question for the steel producer is, how can I generate green premiums from my customers for this higher value product of low carbon steel? Do I have any visibility on how big that green premium is going to be? And how certain can I be about that? Because I need to write the check now and the revenue from this low-carbon product is going to start coming in five years from now. Aptera is opening the door to lighter weight materials, lower costs and lower carbon emissions. Chris, what you've been doing also has applications beyond the United States, doesn't it? I mean, if you think about sunny countries that have poor charging facilities. One of the interesting things about Aptera and something we really started with was a focus on making the Aptera affordable. The main way that we do that is by making the vehicle so efficient. This vehicle gets 250 miles range in its base version with a battery pack that costs less than $5,000. If you looked at any other EV out there that has a 250 mile range, they're probably spending north of $20,000 on that battery pack. So let's talk about the business model here because this is a commercial venture, obviously, and it's a huge risk to move into the automotive industry, which is quite an established industry, should we say, with something so radically different. What made you do it? We wanted to design a vehicle for efficiency. We knew that would pay dividends on the back end. We knew that we could get very talented industrial designers to make it look good and be something that has a lot of utility. But we did not know that people would like it. <laughs> so we kind of had to cross our fingers and plow ahead and design this amazing solar powered dream machine and then just put it out to the world. And we did that earlier this year, and already we have over 13,000 people that have ordered an Aptera and are waiting patiently for delivery. We think that the more people have an Aptera, the better you know we're doing as a planet. We want to start with this three-wheeled vehicle, which is kind of our halo brand, the most efficient vehicle on the road. And then we want to branch out to stuff that's a little more utilitarian, uh, maybe things that uh, deliver packages and just get more utility on the road, but still in a super aerodynamic, lightweight and efficient powertrain packages. And how do you feel being part of this huge revolution that we're all undergoing towards a greener future? We're just happy to be at kind of the forefront of some of these technologies and we hope that they catch on and we're terribly supportive of other EV companies and their aspirations to do more with less material and, and get better energy densities in their battery packs and higher efficiencies for their vehicles in general. So we try to help a lot of small companies along and just foster a world where transportation is more efficient. Of course, the auto industry is not the only place where change is on the horizon. Fuel options in general are getting better. Turning it back to Cornelius, there are some significant questions to ask. For instance, there's a whole new industry for green hydrogen using solar power to electrically split water. Where are we with that? 
green hydrogen technology, the approach driven, as you say, by electrolysis is indeed an important and promising contributor to a low carbon economy. And there's some industries, a range of industries where it will be really, really important to decarbonize. If you want to decarbonize steel making, you have to have hydrogen and essentially it has to be green hydrogen if you want it to be carbon free. Obviously, for this, you need a lot of electricity, a lot of renewable electricity, that is. For instance, just roughly speaking, in order to generate the hydrogen needed to decarbonize a steel plant of the size that we know today, you need about a gigawatt of electrolyzer capacity, which is a lot and which is obviously also a lot of renewable energy. So we need to make sure that the numbers play out and that we make sound plans on what is realistic to build and how can we speed up that build up of renewable capacity and how can we obviously also build up and scale up the electrolyzer technology needed to do that. There's also a cost element to it. Costs need to come down. Scaling up the technology will bring costs down, but we're not there yet. Obviously, the investments needed to make all these new installations and all these new plants, they are very high. But if you break it down to, let's say, individual vehicles or washing machines or other products using steel in the production process, the overall cost increase, let's say, for a vehicle made with low carbon steel, even though that low carbon steel is a lot more expensive at this point than conventional steel, is a single digit percentage impact. Green Hydrogen Systems is one of the companies driving this huge change in the sector. Soren Rydberg is the company's chief commercial officer, and he talks us through this new technology and how to apply it. I think, first of all, we need to identify exactly what green hydrogen is, because hydrogen is produced a lot at the moment, and the primary way of making it is from fossil fuels, which is not green. But you're making it in a different way, aren't you? Yes, we are. We are making the hydrogen basically from water and using water in the, what you call an electrolyzer. So what you basically do is that you're taking renewable energy from solar, hydropower or wind, and you're using that renewable energy in an electrolyzer where you split it into hydrogen and oxygen. The oxygen goes out and the hydrogen is then used for fuel. And where are these installations in your company? Basically, we are the original equipment manufacturer. So we are producing the equipment and selling the equipment to the final asset owner. And those companies are investors into renewable infrastructure, basically. So the likes of large utilities, a large uh, renewable energy project developers. And those companies, they take ownership of the equipment and produce green hydrogen. Some transportation can't be electrified. Batteries are too heavy for commercial planes, for example. So we need to create clean sources of liquid fuels. What role can hydrogen play there? It all starts with the renewable power, wind, solar or hydro. And you take that into the electrolyzer. You basically take water and you use all that energy to make the hydrogen. The hydrogen is then used as, you can say, a feedstock or input factor for uh, methanol production or ammonia production, where you are in basically methanol production, you're adding again CO2. In methanol production, you need to add the CO2 means that that also needs to be green CO2, so captured green CO2. And that puts, of course, a limitation on that, whether you don't need that CO2 addition in ammonia 
and that makes it easier to scale green ammonia. You can say the limitation is maybe it's toxic, but that's more about handling it. And ammonia is also key to producing fertilizers without using fossil fuels and producing this synthetic form of gasoline or petroleum by combining it with carbon dioxide that we capture in another plant. Yeah, exactly. And I think there will be multiple applications. I think in areas where you have a good infrastructure with pipes, you have natural gas today you'll see that you are blending in green hydrogen in the natural gas, taking it gradually down. I think there will be some upgrade of that infrastructure so you can actually pump the hydrogen through. But we do have an incredible explosion in renewable energy at the moment. Why is green hydrogen taking so long to be deployed, to be scaled up in any process? There's been in recent years a lot of development in terms of the electrolyzers that producing based on water and electricity. Are you creating more efficient electrolyzers or ones that use less energy? The energy is still a huge part of the total cost, you can say, of hydrogen. If you're looking at the current products in the market, around 65%, and that's sort of our calculation based on our current product here in 2021, around 65% of the total cost is coming from the electricity cost. Whereas 25% is coming from the initial investment into the equipment and then the last 10% will be from utilities, water and service of the machine and so forth. So electricity is absolutely a key cost driver and we are using a lot of it. So addressing the cost of electricity is key both in terms of making these electrolyzers more efficient, that is one cost out driver. But scaling the technology is a huge thing. I think now the technology is getting really, really mature. We are not yet where we can completely outcompete based on only cost uh, fossil-based energy. But we expect within the next five to 10 years to take out more than half of the cost of hydrogen. So how does it feel to be working in the sector at the beginning of this huge movement? It's super exciting. I've been part of the wind industry before and there's many similarities to that industry. But where the industry sort of slowly moved into where we are today, there's such a huge pressure for solutions today that I think we'll see an industry here that will grow at a very different pace. That's amazing. So in terms of the technology itself, can you improve an electrolyzer? Apart from changing the size of it, can you make it more efficient? We have a number of initiatives looking into making the electrodes more efficient. It's not that it will become bigger. We are working on taking up the temperature. We're working at higher pressure electrolyzers. And the current size is plus minus. The current size is actually really, really good to take up the pressure. Our system is what you call pressurized alkaline electrolyzers. So we work at high pressure and higher pressure and higher temperature actually will give more hydrogen output per electricity unit going into it. So that's a critical part. But there are also what you call balance of plants. So the power unit, the cooling system outside where we will be working with subsuppliers, the experts of power supplies and the experts of cooling systems which are, by the way, also the subsuppliers to a wind turbine. Now, if we look at hydrogen as a future fuel in combination with carbon dioxide to make various hydrocarbons like aviation fuel, like truck fuel, like shipping fuel, that means we've got a demand for carbon dioxide. So this could actually drive the price of carbon dioxide, which then 
speeds the decarbonisation of other industries too, right? Yeah, I think that's true. Basically, it's again about cost out, like you've seen in renewable power, where they've done a tremendous job in taking out cost. And now they are, for new builds, probably even more competitive than fossil fuels. You'll see exactly the same in this industry. It's really about scale, 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 improving the technology. And you do that with scale. You're getting the learnings from the whole install base and taking those learnings into new sort of versions of your technology. So your company is primarily involved in making electrolyzers, but you're collaborating with green energy production, with people who are thinking about using the end product, the hydrogen in fuels. Absolutely. We are working with project developers within renewable space that are getting into this new sector. And there you are seeing some consortiums which we are participating in. Green Lab in Denmark is an example. So when do you think we're going to reach widespread market use of green hydrogen? It's quite interesting if we are looking at just a year ago, 2020, and you looked at announced hydrogen projects in the future, you saw that 90% or so were below 10 megawatt capacity. Here, just one to two years later, you're seeing that announced projects, 90% of those are above 100 megawatt. What's the limiting factor in renewable growth at the moment? I don't think we see it at the pace where we need to be when we're looking at our ambitions for 2050 and having sort of a net zero emission society. We are not at the growth curve in terms of renewables and including hydrogen and others, right, where we need to be. But on the positive note, you're seeing a lot of private companies, investment funds, pension funds, putting huge amount and whole different level of ambition and funding into this. So I have high hopes. Green hydrogen is just one of the ways we can move our fuel-based industries forward. Making this transition involves all the industry players from power to fuels. And that is best achieved through collaboration across the sector. I'm struck, Cornelius, by how many of our sustainability problems that companies face are solved through collaboration. So agreements among, say, manufacturers that they will pay a certain price for steel and that will help then get green steel produced. Are there more collaborations that can help drive this? I think this collaborative aspect, and you're very right in pointing that out, that can go into different directions. One important element of collaboration is between suppliers, manufacturers and consumers, so kind of horizontally along the value chain. Now, there's obviously also a question, can the industry as such do something and can they collaborate among automotive producers or among battery producers, which is more complicated in the sense that these companies almost are competitors and are competing in the marketplace which means that the real solve for advancing automotive or industry-wide solutions needs to go through a regulatory perspective. So what you're saying is regulation and standardization needs to come from above. Yes, I would say it really helps because it's yet another driving force to speed up the development that we're seeing and also to reduce uncertainty for those who need to make decisions. As we've learned, change is on the horizon. Decarbonising transport is key to the world's aim of net zero emissions. We will get there through greater efficiencies, innovative fuels, engineering and vehicle designs. 
But underpinning any success will be the strength of the collaborations we forge along the way. Sustainability Inc. is a Boston Consulting Group podcast produced by Fortune Brand Studio without the participation of the Fortune editorial staff. Join us next time when we explore the biggest challenges that lie in land use for agriculture and how companies across the globe are keeping biodiversity top of mind. Thank you for listening to Sustainability Inc. Please subscribe, download and leave comments and ratings wherever you listen.